If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 36? Ezekiel chapter 36. While you're turning, I would like to join with Andrew and just expressing appreciation to all of you who have served our, our nation. You know, when I was a younger man, as younger men are apt to do, I didn't understand. And as experience has trained me in conversations with veterans and counseling with veterans over the years, I have, like Andrew mentioned, realized the burden that you carry with you and the scars that you carry with you and the hardship that it's brought about in your life. And so I just want to say thank you. Thank you for suffering that we might be free. Thank you for enduring that we might be free. Thank you for serving that we might be free. So Ezekiel chapter 36, we're going to be in verses 22 through 27. Let's read those together. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Let's pray to the Lord together this morning. Heavenly Father, I am so thankful that rather than obliterating us from the planet as you were apt to do, as you ought to have done, that Lord instead you made a provision so we could be clean. To make us well, to make us right, to make us righteous, to make us suitable, to enter into your holiness without being vaporized there on the spot. Lord, you have done it, and you have done it all, and I pray this morning that our hearts would treasure it and enjoy it and delight in it, and that as a result our voices would proclaim it, that Lord, it would not be said of us as it was said of Israel, that we have profaned the holiness of your name among the nations, but that rather the nations would be able to look upon us as a lighthouse of your glory and be drawn into your mercy and grace. Oh God, meet with us. I pray for my veteran brothers and sisters who are here this morning, that, Lord, your spirit would especially minister to them, that, Lord, if today they are downtrodden, that you would be the lifter of their heads, that if today they are enjoying the fruits of their labor, that, Lord, you would give them the freedom to enjoy it fully. And, Lord, wherever they are in between, oh, Father, that you would meet them there with the good news of the gospel. We ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So God calls Ezekiel into the ministry in the most dramatic way possible. It's very similar to the way he calls Isaiah into the ministry in Isaiah chapter 6. In in Ezekiel chapter 1, when he's issuing this prophetic call to Ezekiel, what God does is he peels back the floor of heaven and he allows Ezekiel to get a glimpse of the outskirts of his glory. And having peeled back the floor of heaven, Ezekiel looks and has this vision from the Lord and it comes in a storm. The wind is blowing and the thunder is clapping and the lightning is striking. 
And he looks up and he sees four heavenly creatures. And they appear to him as creatures of light. Creatures who are living flames. They have, there's four of them. And each of them has a human face. And they have four wings. And with two of the wings, they connect themselves to one another. And with the other two wings, they cover themselves. Them, heavenly beings, shielding themselves from the glory and holiness of God. Above them, there is a a sea of crystal, above which there is a throne of sapphire. And Ezekiel says that as he looks up and he sees the creatures of fire, and he sees the sea of crystal, and he sees the sapphire throne, that it's like the light, the brilliance of a rainbow that completely abounds in the heavens, so much so that all he can do is the rational response of any person that sees the glory of God get down on his face. And having revealed his glory, the edges of his glory to Ezekiel and putting him on his face in chapter 2, the Lord lifts him back up on his feet. And after having glimpsed the holiness of God, he says, now I want you to look at my people. I want you to look at my people. And when Ezekiel looks at his people, what he sees is that they are a rebellious house and a rebellious generation. They are impudent and they are hard in heart and ice in face. They are unconcerned with who God is or what God would do with them. They are chasing after every little God that would throw them a wink and living for everything other than what God has called for them to look. And the problem of Ezekiel's ministry And the problem which the big story seeks to resolve is revealed in an instant that there is an unassailable chasm between God and his people. The holiness of of our Lord and the rebellion of his people. And it seems a gulf that is too far, that is impossible for one to cross. It's punctuated by the reality that here are these creatures of light, these heavenly beings that are covering themselves from the glory of God. But these creatures of the dirt have the audacity to deny him to his face. And so what we have over the course of Ezekiel is God's two-tiered plan on how to resolve this insurmountable problem. The first thing that God is going to do is he's going to withdraw his presence from his people. In Ezekiel chapter 10, God's spirit leaves the presence of the temple that is there to protect the people and provide for the people. And to to be the, the beacon, the blazing center of all of God's people. The presence of God there among them. He withdraws his presence and allows his people to be marched into exile three different times. Allows his holy city to be sacked and destroyed utterly. So that they can see. The foolishness of their way so that they can reap the consequences of their sins. So that they can see that their audacious denial of the glory of God is an unexcusable sin. But he won't leave them there. He won't leave them there. That having shown his people the impotence of what life is like without the presence of God. The Lord will renew his presence among his people in a new way. That the Lord will restore them and rejuvenate them. That he will overcome this insurmountable problem by the most unsuspecting means imaginable. And in that, what we begin to see is what we have been seeking to see throughout the entirety of the big story. As we move from old covenant realities to new covenant realities. That there is a problem, but it it is God's problem. And for us, God's problem becomes good news. Good news. And so this morning I want you to see that God will solve an insurmountable problem. God will solve. God opens up 
by saying something that is a shock to the sensibilities of our 21st century therapeutic faith. God takes the paddles of the defibrillator and he puts them on our, our dead, cold, consumeristic, cultural Christianity and he electrocutes it back into reality. He says, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel. I'm sorry. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. My holy name. Now that's not how we like to think about God, is it? <laughs> God says that my primary mission is not your happiness. My primary mission is not your enjoyment of the Holy Land. My primary mission is not that all goes well with you and that all of life is a blessing to you. My primary mission does not have you at the center. That God himself is utterly God-centered. That God's preeminent concern is not with our ease of life. It is not with the blessings that we experience. It is not with the comfortability of our life. It is not with the happiness of our life. The preeminent concern of God is the holiness of his own name. The glory of his own name. Now, to us, we begin to wonder if maybe that's narcissistic. And there is nothing that we dislike more than a narcissistic person, right? What do you mean God is all about God? What, what kind of God is that? And who even wants a God like that? Like, like what, are, what do you mean? Like, I don't, I'm not even attracted to a God like that. But you see, when we stop to think about it for just a second, what we realize is that there's really no other choice. There's no other choice. Who is greater than God before whom God should bow? Who is of greater good that the Lord should submit himself? Who is of greater holiness that the Lord should, should bow before him? Who is of greater might that the Lord should heed his call? Who is of greater love that the Lord should learn and devote himself? That the center of everything that is good and the center of everything that is holy, at the center of everything that is righteous, at the center of everything that is worthy, is nothing other than God himself. That if God were not God-centered, God himself would be an idolater. Because there is nothing else that is worthy of that devotion and affection and passion. I am not the one who neither sleeps nor slumbers. I am not the one whose, whose omnipotence and omniscience and omnisapience holds together the core of the universe. I am not the one who knows the plan for every living organism or the purpose of every suffering providence. I don't know any of these things. All of these things are only known by the Lord. So you see, the problem is not that God is narcissistic. The problem is that we are narcissistic. And our difficulty with passages just like this are proof and evidence of that fact. That we don't want God to be at the center of the universe. We want ourselves to be at the center of the universe. We don't want what God desires to be at the center of the universe. We want what we desire to be at the center of the universe. We want God to be our genie in a bottle. We like to think of God as being some grandpa waiting out on his porch, hoping that his kids will stop by one day and trying to make himself relevant in an increasingly technological and scientific age. And God says, no, 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 no. 
I am the founder of the science. I am the beginning of all things that have been created. I am the source of all that matters and the beginning of all that loves. I am the source of all wisdom and the source of all might and the source of all righteousness. When you begin to understand what God is saying, you can begin to understand the apparently insurmountable problems that appear here in Ezekiel and appear among us today. That God appears unable. That God, I call this the question of the nations. You'll remember we've been covering this throughout the big story. If you're, if you're new with us, we're in a series of messages where we've been going from Genesis all the way to Revelation. We're preaching through every single book of the Bible to see how it's all one story that fits together. That it's one story with one main character, namely God. And how he's bringing all these things. And you'll remember all the way back from Genesis, beginning with Abraham, the reason that God chose his people. God chose his people so that through his people he could make his glory known and the nations would see them. The nations would see how they live and he would see how, they would see how they were provided for and they would see how they were protected. And they would say, look at this insignificant little people and how God has prospered. Surely their God is greater than all of our gods. And they would be drawn to be blessed in the same way. See, there was a one-to-one correlation in antiquity that... Every nation and every group of people had their own little God, right? Had their own God. And your ability to defend yourself, your ability to, to, to be successful in battle, your ability to prosper economically, all of these were said to be connected to your God. So that those who prospered most economically, those who were strongest on the battlefield, those who were most impenetrable to their enemies, they were the ones that were thought to have the greatest of gods. So think of what it says. Jerusalem is burning. It's rubble. God's people have been marched off into a foreign land to live among the pagans, to be ingratiated within the society, to capitulate to the Babylonian way. Their God looks impotent. That is, if you would have looked upon them, their problem would not have been an economic problem. Their problem would not have been a militaristic problem. Their problem was a theological one. An apparent, it would have been apparent to the, genera- to the nations. Oh, we would do better to have that kind of thinking, wouldn't we? We would do better to have that kind of thinking. So here they are in Babylon making a name for themselves to say, look at how weak our God is. They made their God look like the, 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 the idol, the Israel, the way they had lived and the way they had cared and the consequences that had come as a result of their sin and, the, and the, the flawed way in which they lived their lives and the way they had abandoned their God. They made their God look like the weak little impotent false God. And God says that you have brought shame to my name before the nations, the name that you were meant to glorify. So we see the question of the nations, but there's a second problem, that God appears unjust. I call this the question of holiness. You'll you'll notice here that this is what God is concerned with. He is concerned with the holiness of my great name, that that is what has been profaned, that what he wants to do is he wants to vindicate my holiness before their eyes. That at front and center in God's mind is not just that the people would think that he was able. Not just that they would think that he was mighty. Not just that the nations would look on and think, what a strong God. But that the nations would look on and think, what a holy God. What a righteous God. What a good God. See, where does a society derive its conscience? A society derives its conscience from its God, doesn't it? 
Whatever it is that it treasures most, whoever it is that it lives for, whoever or whatever it is that it devotes its life to, look around in our country, brothers and sisters, and you will find our gods by looking at our conscience. That a nation derives its sense of ethics and morality from the nature of its God. And here is Israel profaning by their own lifestyle, profaning by their own lusting after all of the other gods, profaning the name of God by making it appear unholy because they are so doggone unholy. Because they look completely wretched when you look upon them. So there's a way to look at Babylon, even for the nations, and to say, and to say, they are getting what they deserve. They are reaping the consequences of their sin. They are just, this is what was ultimately going to happen to them, because obviously they were following after a wicked God. See, God can't just overlook sin. You understand that, right? God can't just overlook it. That in and of itself is an abomination. I put uh, Proverbs 17, 15 there at the bottom of the screen. Look at what it says. This is what God says in his word. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. Now if the Lord didn't punish sin, then he would be unjust. He would be an abomination unto himself. Oh, we don't like this picture of God. We're uncomfortable with it. It's hard. It's difficult. It challenges our sensibilities. It challenges our sin nature. It challenges our, our, our idea of, of how easy it is that we can flippantly just gallop into the presence of Almighty God. So now our problem begins to reach critical mass, you see. That on one hand, on one hand, if God judges his people and exerts his holiness and sends them into exile, now he looks unable. He looks impotent, unable to protect them, unable to provide for them, perhaps even unable to transform them. But if God intervenes and God steps into Babylon and God rescues his people and overcomes their enemies and delivers them from their sin, now God looks unjust and unholy because he is rescuing a group of people that don't deserve rescuing. See, this is the tension. This is the tension. To show that he is able and to prove that he is able, God must deliver his people from their enemies. But to show and to prove that he is holiness, holy, he must also deal with their sin. This is the insurmountable problem of Ezekiel 36. This is the insurmountable problem of the big story. This is what the Bible is resolving. So what does God do? God will solve an insurmountable problem through impossible means. God will solve an insurmountable problem through impossible means. That God is going to resolve this tension between his holiness and his power. His justice and his grace. His holiness and his glory. He's going to resolve this tension and he's going to do it in the most unimaginable way possible. And it is going to be him to do it. You'll, you'll notice that throughout the text it says, I will. You, I'll just point them out here where, where we have them. I will. It says it 12 times just in chapter 36 alone. I will give you a new heart and he's ready. I will put it within you. I will remove the heart of stone and give you a heart. I will put my flesh within, uh, my spirit within you. That over and over what God wants to make clear to his people and what God is saying through his prophet is you are not going to self-rescue. This is not going to be about you. Because you are a secondary beneficiary. You are not the preeminent purpose. The preeminent purpose is the glory of my name. The exertion of, of, my, of my might. The demonstration of my power. The renown of my name. So from start to finish, 
I'm going to do it. I'm going to be the one that fixes the problem. I'm going to be the one that does all the saving. I'm going to be the one that does all the power. I'm going to be the one that takes responsibility for you since you will not take responsibility for yourself. I will do it all. So what will he do? This is the best part. He says, when through you, through you, I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Do you see what he's going to do? God, through the source of the problem, his people, through the source of the problem, sinners, through the source of the problem, all those who are weak, all those who are imminent, all those who want to go on their own way and lust after every God and live according to do whatever is wise in their own, all of them, God, through them, will vindicate the name of his holiness. And I want to stop for just a second. You remember back when we were so bothered by the narcissism of God? How can God be so God-centered? Let me show you how good God is. God is so good that even when he, even though he is totally centered upon his own, his own glory and the renown of his own name and focused about the good and the holiness of his own essence, that God being God-centered is good for you and me. That God is so essentially good that being focused on the holiness of his own name, you and I get grace and mercy. It's the nature of who he is. That's why he is at the center and not you and me. You and me would be only concerned with ourselves and totally unconcerned with him. God is concerned with himself and it blesses every single one of us. Three specific blessings that I want you to see that God says I will do from start to finish. This is what we mean, by the way, when we talk about sovereign grace. This is what we mean when we talk about sovereign grace. He says, God will clean us entirely. God will clean us entirely. He says in verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. So last year... Uh, on a Friday, Josiah and I had gone and we'd spent the day out in the woods, right? And we had done man stuff. You know what I mean? And I, I, think, we, I think with our boys, we need to do some man stuff sometimes, right? And so we went out and we had mud riding. We'd been when mud riding. I, 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 when I talk about mud riding, you know, Cody Hill's going to do it right. We had mud literally over the windshield, over all. I mean, it was just clumped up everywhere, right? We go out, we get at Pine Glen, and we're walking, and like, we're, we're catching fish. And so, and I told him, I, I think I even told him that day, you know, we smell like men today. We smell like body odor and fish. We're covered in mud. I mean, my boy has got mud on his face. He's probably ruined a pair of shoes that he wasn't supposed to ruin because that's what dads do. And so at the end of the day, we, we go home, and Megan gets home right before uh, Santa King Toyota was going to close, and I, I needed an oil change, and I thought, because this is how a man thinks, I guess, I can squeeze this in, right? So I, I run over to Santa King, and my, my thought process is, is, first of all, you know, I'll make some joke about how nasty the car is, because literally clumps of mud were falling off in their, in their garage. I kind of felt bad about that. I didn't think about that at the time, by the way. But clumps of dirt are just falling off. So I thought, I'll, I'll just make a joke about that. I'll go, I'll sit out on the, on the front and, and just mind my business and, you know, it'll all be fine. So I go and I drop, and, and y'all, it, it, I, I look like true rabbit town all the way through, okay? True rabbit town from the crown of my head to the bottoms of my feet. And I go and I drop off the forerunner and, I, and, I, and I'm, I'm just about, I'm, I'm making my quick exit to get away from where human beings are, right? And in those two words that send chills down my spine, Pastor Cody, 
Pastor Cody? And I look over, and it is one of my brother pastors, a colleague. Now, I want y'all to know this man, he pastors the First Baptist Church, okay? And he was dressed like a First Baptist pastor. He was dressed to the nines. I mean, pants are creased, sweater perfect, shirt under it. I mean, just like you like it, right? And this brother's a bit of a close talker, okay, if you're familiar with that episode of Seinfeld. And he comes up to me, and he's this close to me, and we're having an intense conversation, and I can't hear a word that he's saying because all I hear in my head is, I smell like fish, I smell like fish, I smell like fish. When you're in the presence of somebody really, really clean, it makes you really self-aware of how offensive your odor is, of how offensive your filth is. And it should be really easy for us to understand when we think about the offensiveness of dirt and the offensiveness of filth, to be able to apply that to ourselves morally and spiritually. You know, you and I, we look around and we compare ourselves to one another. And we think, I'm doing pretty good. You know, like, I'm not as bad as a lot, not as good as some, not as good as some, I'll give you that, I'll grant you that, right? But I'm not as bad as a lot, so I'm Okay. And I think that's why Ezekiel, God at the beginning of Ezekiel's ministry lifts Ezekiel's head beyond what he could see among the people of God. Because all he would see among people is what? Filth. To look on a higher plane to see one who is glorious and holy, pure. So that he could recognize rightly the stench in the nostrils of God that his people had become. We excuse ourselves, brothers and sisters, too easily by comparing ourselves with one another. Y'all, you will, on the judgment day, not be compared to the person sitting beside you. You will not be compared to the person that lives across the street. You will not be compared to Adolf Hitler. You will not be compared to the Congress. You will not be compared to the movie stars on TV. You will not be compared to the bully at school. You will not be compared to them. Compared to them, you may be doing great. You will be compared to the holy standard of Almighty God. And before Him, you will appear as though you are wearing filthy rags. hope is that you can be washed clean. The hope is that you can be washed clean. Notice the emphasis. The emphasis is on what? All your uncleannesses. All your idols. Now that tells us two things. First of all, we are thoroughly filthy. To say all means it's not just a little bit. Not just one over here in the corner. It means there's a lot of it. Think about your sins. You have public sins and private sins. You have sins in the past and sins in the present and sins in the future. You have the big sins that bother you a lot and that you're ashamed of. And you have a lot of little sins that you don't sweat so much. You have sins of omission, things that you should do that you haven't done. Sins of commission, things that you ought not do that you are doing. Your life is thoroughly filthy before the face of God. But God says as thoroughly filthy as you are. As thoroughly filthy as my people are, past, present, and future, public and private, big and small, as thoroughly filthy as they are, I will thoroughly cleanse them by my own provision. I will take that which is as red as scarlet and make it as white as snow. I will take the debt, nail it to the tree, and cancel it in its entirety. 
Oh, isn't that a promise worth us remembering, church? Your past comes up, doesn't it? Your past comes up and it wags its finger at you and it tells you, you cannot be right with God. You are a fraud of a person. You are worthless. You are a stench. Jesus says, I've washed you from the past. I've washed you from all of it. You think about the way that you treated your wife and kids coming into the church this morning, and I'm here preaching, and and all you can think is, I am filthy, I am a stench in the nostrils of God, except God has washed you clean. You think about the insecurity of the future. How can I know I have any hope tomorrow? Maybe I did pretty good today, but I know I'm going to do awful one day. That's the pattern. Washed. You've been washed. Tell your past that it's been washed. Tell today that you've been washed. Remind yourself tomorrow that you will be washed. Public and private, omission and commission, big and small. You have been thoroughly cleaned by the provision of God. And the cross is beginning to come into view, isn't it? God is going to show that he is able and powerful By doing that which is impossible. Washing the soul of a man. And he's going to prove that he is holiness by demanding that your soul be washed. That you survive the uh, the presence of his holiness. God will clean us entirely and God will transform us completely. That is, God is not just going to change the status of his people. God is going to change the nature of his people. God isn't just going to change your behavior. We're not talking about mere behavior modification. We're talking about inward transformation. That God, when he talks about the heart, the new heart, and the new spirit, he's talking about that which is in the man. That's the seed of his will. That he's going to change the way that he thinks and change what the man loves and ultimately change what you and I do. That it is going to be a thorough transformation of nature and essence. This is what we're talking about when we talk about regeneration. This is what we're talking about when we talk about rebirth. It brings in our mind John chapter 3, right, that I read to start off our service. And as I usually try to have for you, that's a good verse, a good passage for you to do a a comparative study with. I think Jesus is drawing exactly from the IV of Ezekiel 36 to inject it into Nicodemus' veins. Here's this Pharisee that comes in the presence of, of of, of Christ. He's likely on the Sanhedrin and he says, like, I see things from you, Jesus, I just haven't seen before. And Jesus' response is not, yeah, I know, I'm pretty great, right? Jesus' response is, well, if you want to have eternal life, you have to be born again. And I love Nicodemus' response. Nicodemus says, look, Jesus, there ain't enough therapists in all of North America that's going to be able to get me straight if I have to go back inside my mother's womb. It's just not natural. It's just not right. Like, what are you talking about? And you know what Jesus says? Of course it's not natural. It's supernatural. You're going to be born of the water, washed clean, and you're going to be born of the Spirit, made new. There's going to be a transformation that takes place in you that is going to utterly make you into a new kind of man. That is what he's talking about. It's a heart transplant. That in his, in his people, when he finds them, there is a heart of stone. A heart that lives for itself, a heart that cannot be changed, a heart that is hardened toward his neighbor and hardened toward his, toward his 
toward his, uh, toward his sin and hardened toward his God. And the man can do nothing to change it. So what does God say? I will change it. I'll take that heart of stone from your chest and I'll put in you a heart of flesh. I'll put in you a heart that can hear me. I'll put into you a heart that wants me. I'll put into you a heart that loves me. I'll put into you a heart that wants what I want and will go where I want you to go and be who I want you to be. That I won't change you from the outside in. We've tried that. You can't do it. I'm going to change you from the inside out. I'm going to transform your taste buds, see? See, God gives us new taste buds. He gives us new appetites so that we hunger for what he longs for and we're thirsty for what he's thirsty for so that we want his holiness as bad as he wants his holiness. And that's Christian freedom. That's Christian freedom. Christian freedom is not the ability to sin with impunity. Christian freedom is not the, uh, the freedom to go and to become all the things that the world are without any concern of what it means in the face of God. Christian freedom means that God has so utterly transformed you as a person that now you want to do what he wants for you to do. That you aren't abstaining from immoral sexuality because you have to. You're doing it because you want to. You're set free. You, you, you aren't abstaining from, from, uh, from cutting on your taxes and cheating at work because that's what you, because you're just begrudgingly, this is what I got to do because God says it. You're doing it because you have something new inside of you, a new heart that, that beats to bring glory and honor to the holiness of God's name. It's giving. I, I'm not giving because I've got to give my 10%. I've got to give my tithe. I'm gonna, he's going to get me. No, it's because I have a heart that is generous. I have a heart that has been set free. That God has liberated in me a passion and a delight for his word. And a growing passion and glory and honor to his name. He has liberated in me a desire to be right with him. And whatever it takes, wherever I go, I want to be right with God. Can I just ask you something? Has that ever happened for you? Has that ever happened for you? I know, I know. It takes time to overcome the habitual sins in your life. I get that. But have your desires changed? Has your want to changed? Have your taste buds changed? Have your appetites changed? Oh, Christian, Christian, not have they changed, but are they still changing? This is a lifelong process in the indwelling power of the Spirit in which you become a demonstration of the power of God and the holiness of God. The power of God is what? I can now transform a man into a different kind of person and the holiness of God, I can transform him into a holy person. Well, the cross is coming into view, isn't it? The cross is coming into view. He's resolving an insurmountable problem through impossible means through us. Because of what he's doing. And he will fill us permanently. He will fill us permanently. Look what he says there in verse 27. I will put my spirit within you. And I will cause you to walk in my statutes. And be careful to obey my rules. What's been the problem? Throughout the old covenant. What we've, we've talked about this, right? The problem is, is their revivals are short-lived. They don't, they, just don't, they don't last very long. There are flashes in the pan. You have Hezekiah and Josiah. You have Joshua. You have David. You have these moments throughout the, throughout the Old Testament where there are these revivalistic moments. And it think, okay, finally, finally they've gotten it. 
Finally, God has gotten his people straightened out. And usually before that, single generation has went to their graves. They've already forsaken the Lord. And so the Lord, thinking ahead to that day in which he will re-inhabit his people, that day in which he will restore them, he looks ahead and he says, no, this time will be different. This time will be different. That this time I'm going to allow my spirit to come and dwell with you. Remember what's happened, the, the context. The spirit has forsaken the temple. It's not, he, he's not there anymore. He's not there to deliver the people. He's not there to provide for the people. He's not there to give them an example. He's not there to offer sacrifices. He's not there. But God will not stay away from his people. God will not stay away from his people. Oh, the Spirit of God is coming to dwell among his people again. But this time, he, they, he will not be in walls made of cedar. He will not be there behind a veil that is a curtain. He will be inside of his people. Because God will transform his very people into his very temple. So that the Spirit of God lives in me lives in you to bring about what effect? To cause you to walk in my statutes. You know what the Holy Spirit does in the life of the Christian? He makes us holy. He makes us holy. Oh, when we live the, the fruit of the Spirit, we live knowing that we are bringing glory to the name of the Lord. When we grieve the Spirit, the Spirit convicts us of our sin and brings us back into fellowship with God. The Spirit is the, is the comforter, and the Spirit is the guide, and the Spirit is the advocate, and the Spirit is the helper to help us become the men and the women that God has called for us to be, to be demonstrations of His holiness and demonstrations of His power. You know, I've gotten where every day, the way I pray, I pray that I would live a spirit-filled life. And the way I pray that is I say something like this. You know, Lord, today I'm going to be tempted to be angry. Make me slow to anger. Today I'm going to be tempted to be harsh. Through the Spirit, would you make me kind? Today I'm going to be tempted to get exasperated and frustrated. Through the Spirit, would you make me patient? Today, I'm going to be tempted to be anxious and try to take control of things and manipulate situations with my own force of personality. Would you make me faithful? Would you give me faith? Today, today I'm going to be tempted, Lord, to, to want to go and to, to try to proclaim my own name. Would you give me a spirit of goodness and humility and meekness? And what's missing among the church today is living in the fullness of the Spirit. See, this is the resolution that God has. This is the resolution that God has. How will he both deal seriously with our sin while at the same time delivering us from our evil, uh, delivering us from our enemies? How is it that, that God will, will in one way dis exert his great power while at the same time demonstrating his great holiness? I will. That is, he'll come. He'll come. And he'll take all of the sins that have been stored up against you and I, and he will pour out his accumulated wrath upon his own son, demonstrating his holiness.
He will not just pour out his own wrath upon his son, he will raise his son in victory over what? Over death, over sin, that we might what? Walk in a newness of life, demonstrating that he is in fact able. He will wash us clean from every uncleanness. He will take what is scarlet and make it white as snow. He will transform us from the inside out so that we want his will and we pursue his will and we long to live according to his ways so that we delight in his word and, and devote ourselves to his church and commit ourselves to his teachings and bring glory to his name in every arena and he will seal it. He will make it permanent. He will make it irrevocable because he will place his spirit within us. Y'all, if God can overcome our problem, if God can come overcome the power of his ability and the power of his holiness, he can do anything. God will solve an insurmountable problem through impossible means. Let's pray to the Lord together. Thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one. We are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church, and we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. And we would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon.